Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast. Today, in honor of our series on Asian infertility, we're joined by two celebrated voices in Asia and globally, former MTV Asia VJ and Discovery Travel Channel presenter and producer Denise Keller and Miss Universe Japan 2021 and actor Juri Watanabe. Today's episode is presented by Generation Next Fertility in New York City, whose mission is to provide individualized patient-centric quality care and innovative technologies to help patients become parents. For more or to book a consult, visit generationnextfertility.com. Denise Keller and Juri Watanabe are the definition of beauty, smarts, and grace to their audiences, who followed them as celebrated major pageant winners and popular on-air talent. But what they may not know is the desire and drive both of these women have when it comes to breaking down taboos in Asian culture and around the world, around issues like infertility, pregnancy loss, motherhood, and mental health. Denise, who is a Singaporean model and TV presenter-producer of Chinese and German ancestry, and Jury, who is a model, actor, and activist of Japanese and Korean descent, strive to elevate the conversation on their public platforms so that others who are struggling feel less alone and isolated as they once did. In Asia especially if you're a public figure, you don't want to give too much information because then you'll get an outpouring floodgate of sympathy for you. So I think Mm -hmm. you kind of take what you can and find ways to communicate the message in a more neutral way. So when I was going through what I was going through, I found a group of women in Singapore who did a bit of the Chinese whispers where it's like, oh, are you struggling? Yes, I'm struggling too. Mm-hmm. And we started talking and sharing sources of information, community groups, and I started building more upon it. And that gave me the strength and also the empowerment to vocalize a little bit more about it. According to child and adolescent psychiatrist and assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences at UCLA, Brandon Ido, MD, quote, Asian Americans are about 50% less likely than other racial groups to seek mental health services. Ido says that it's because, quote, in some Asian cultures, mental health challenges are viewed as an individual problem or weakness and talking openly about sadness, disappointment, or depression is rarely encouraged. As a result, we know that some people don't seek the medical or mental support they need as they struggle. And Denise and Jury want to confront this so that the next generation of people know that it's not only okay to admit that you need help, but important to do so so that you can really achieve success. I know Denise, especially, we followed each other for years. Jory, we met recently at the Pregnantish event, and I'm so happy you're both on the Pregnantish podcast. Thanks for making the time today to be here with me. Thank you so much. I know you're both calling in now from LA where Denise is visiting from Singapore and um, Jury, you moved to LA, I guess, in recent years. How long have you been there? So I grew up in LA, actually, middle school through university. And then I went back to Japan and then came back here last year. So all new. (laughs) Well, you know, 
I do love hearing this because we always on the show have the tagline of pregnancy, real talk about fertility, but it always extends beyond fertility. Really what we're doing is we have full lives outside of that. And there's a lot that people don't know when they see you guys on air or see you on a stage. And so I'd love to actually start before we go into what this episode really is about. I would love each of you to introduce yourself. Let us know who you are. And I'll start with you, Denise. Tell us a bit more about who you are and how you'd present yourself. Thank you, Andrea. Really appreciate you having me on your podcast. And thank you for doing the work that you do on Pregnantish. I've been following you since I discovered you in Asia and love what you do. I'm based in Singapore. I extensively traveled throughout Asia in my career, the last 10 years being all over the place, working for Discovery Channel, producing long-form documentary films, And then I settled back into Singapore about 2015, where I got married and kind of downsized my production a bit because long form content, as you probably know, is time consuming, physically exhausting and stressful. Yes, absolutely. And so you live in Singapore. You're, I understand, a mother now. How old is your child? Yes, I'm a first time mom. And my daughter is 19 months old now. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm sure, yeah, that was a trip on an airplane from Singapore to Los Angeles with a (laughs) 19-month-old. She's in the no phase. Never boring, right? So great to have you, Jury. I'd love you to introduce yourself as well to those who may not know you in the Pregnantish podcast audience. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. And again, for a very nice introduction as well. I kind of felt I was like blushing a little bit as you were like (laughs) saying our introductions and like Denise is amazing too. And well, anyways, my name's Juri and I am a former Miss Universe Japan. I was born and raised in Japan as well as in the States and a little bit in China. So I was kind of all over as well in terms of having the experience of both East and West growing up and having that culture. So a lot of the work I do is really about bridging the gap between the East and the West and having a cultural understanding of the East and the West. So when I came back to LA, that has really been my platform to represent Asia in the best way possible, but also helping the Asian community understand more about, you know, destigmatizing areas like talking about mental health, because I think that's an area that the West does really well in. And I feel that by being this cultural bridge, we can all learn from each other. So that's a lot of the work that I do now following my Miss Universe journey. I love it. What brought you to the pageant stage? How did that happen? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I was never like really into glitz and glam, to be honest. I was very much like, I don't really care about myself, etc. But growing up, I actually really struggled with anxiety and to an extreme extent to some may think, but I really struggled. And I didn't really get to tell my parents about that because Denise, as you may know, like in Asian culture, we don't talk about feelings, especially to our parents. So that was really showing on my physical side. I was 
breaking out a lot. I just didn't look well in a sense, you know, I just looked really dull at all times. And then my mom was the one actually being like, hey, you should have some sort of motivation to take care of yourself. I don't know if she knew that I was struggling with my mental health, but when I start taking the stage, I really began being more confident in myself and being sure of my opinions, expressing myself. And then I got addicted to the growth aspect. And then, yeah, here I am. And you really did elevate the conversation, which we'll go more deeply into after, of mental health, which is amazing. Denise, the way you found us, of course, is because you also have used your very public platform to speak openly about your IVF experience and infertility. Why did you make that decision to go public with that? I think for me personally, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride because I had suffered several miscarriages during the COVID lockdown period. And prior to that, I was trying to conceive naturally over about five years. And I'd been to several doctors and I'd been diagnosed, misdiagnosed, re-diagnosed. And apparently I had all the problems in the world. It was always my fault. So I was going through a bit of a roller coaster ride of, you know, emotions and what was going through with me. It felt like complete failure. I was looking for help and sources where I could feel supported. And that's how I discovered your account because in Asia, I think it's quite common to not seek help with mental health issues or asking even a friend to support you in your struggles is a bit taboo-like. You most likely will get sympathy as opposed to empathy, and that puts you in a worse place, if I may say so. So I struggled a little bit with that. And in the end, when I suffered the third miscarriage, I was like, right, that nobody has bedside manners at these doctor's visits. And I was feeling very emotional. I actually felt I was going through a depressive state of mind. I can't really say that I was depressed, but I couldn't get out of bed. And so that was a clear indication that I was not well. I'm a go-getter. I love the outdoors. I love adventure. I didn't recognize who I was. So when I finally found a doctor who had bedside manners, the first thing he asked me was, how are you doing? you know, mm-hmm. with heart and looked me in the eye and said, I know you've been going through a rough ride and I just broke down. And so he basically helped me understand what was going on with me. He wanted to find out why I was miscarrying versus why I couldn't get pregnant or what was wrong with me. He was like, I think once we understand what is going on behind all these tests and I can, you know, research a little bit more. We can sit down and have a look at it properly. And that was all I really needed. I just needed somebody to have a little bit of a heart, a little bit of understanding and a little bit of empathy. And with the accounts and support groups that I sought out in Singapore, that really helped me get through some of the hard moments And yeah, that's how I discovered you. And I really loved how supportive you were in your stories because 
it's a very isolating experience when you've been trying to conceive for years and you miscarry so often, you just feel like a complete failure. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting about social media and the internet, the World Wide Web, is that worldwide connection we have that even if we look different, have different cultures, different backgrounds, there are universal connections that we can make through issues that we're talking about, pregnancy loss, mental health. It doesn't matter what corner of the world you're in. We actually at Pregnantish have done international surveys with our audience, finding the same pain points, whether it's in Zimbabwe or Michigan, it's the same pain points we're hearing from people suffering through these chapters. But both of you, did you consciously make a decision. I mean, of course, Jury, you brought it to the Miss Japan stage, the Miss Universe stage. Denise, you were, I know in the early 2000s, I mean, I was Googling you to learn more about your illustrious career. The it girl, you know, here you are. And now you're coming out with something, both of you, so vulnerable. What was that process like? What was that decision like? Did you share it with anyone before you went public? Or did you just know you had to do it? Tell me more about that process. I have to be really honest. (laughs) I was really careful because in Asia, especially if you're a public figure, you don't want to give too much information because then you'll get an outpouring floodgate of sympathy for you. So I think Mm -hmm. you kind of take what you can and find ways to communicate the message in a more neutral way. So when I was going through what I was going through, I found a group of women in Singapore who did a bit of the Chinese whispers where it's like, oh, are you struggling? Yes, I'm struggling too. Mm -hmm. And we started talking and sharing sources of information, community groups, and I started building more upon it. And that gave me the strength and also the empowerment to vocalize a little bit more about it. While I was going through these blood tests and diagnostics and God knows what else I had to go through, just to finish that story with the doctor, in the end, he found out, you know, with all of the recommendations of pushing me right into IVF, like that's your Mm -hmm. only resource. That's the only way you're going to get pregnant. This lovely doctor found out that I actually was fine. There was nothing wrong with me. It was just nobody wanted to take the time to listen to me and what was going on and found out that my body just produced too many NK cells, natural killer cells. I have that too. Yes. Okay. So that was the key thing. And I only had to be on aspirin and steroids. So every time I went into an (laughs) IVF clinic, I got pregnant and they're like, oh, I guess you don't need IVF. Denise, that's so wild you say that because in year five of my struggle, I went to what was considered an alternative doctor here in New York who said I had high natural killer cells, NK cells. And a lot of doctors dismissed that as something real. And there are schools of thought, different schools of thought on how much that impacts for fertility. But interesting in your case that it really was this minor tweak you made. Wow. It was. Wow. It was a minor tweak of taking aspirin and being on steroids. And that was it. But I had gone through the whole mental health and struggles of feeling like a complete failure that I couldn't keep a pregnancy or I wasn't getting pregnant. And I just knew that I was never going to be a mother. And that was my 
only wish to have a child after being on the road for 20 years. That's what I really wanted. And nobody would sit down and have that conversation with me. So I would have to say it was a massive roller coaster ride in Asia. But, you know, reaching out to other girlfriends and women alike, there is small little pockets of support. I really feel it could improve more. There is a taboo of talking about your infertility, subfertility, whatever fertility in Asia. It's just, mm -hmm. it's not talked about. People don't talk about it casually. You can't even tell somebody that, oh, I have to go see the doctor because I'm seeing a fertility. Like, that's just not going to happen. You don't have that kind of conversation openly. I'm sure in the West, it's a little bit more liberal, but in Asia, I think there's still that stigma of not being able to express yourself. And now for our mid-roll break with Dr. Janelle Luke, founder of Generation Next Fertility in New York City, our episode sponsor, who was born in Hong Kong and connects her passion for women's health and fertility with many things, including her experience as a young girl in Asia. I am so inspired by your story. And for those who don't know it, can you share more about this, what inspired you to pursue reproductive medicine, connecting to your experience growing up? I was always uh, very curious of science and biology. My mom is a social worker. Her history, actually in so many ways, and her childhood history, in so many ways had affected me in my career path. So she was given away because she was a female. And for so many audiences or patients, when you hear a background in China or Chinese history, they may think this is a practice that had happened, but it's not really a common practice. <laughs> it only happened to, I guess, economic backgrounds. But actually, my family is from a very good middle class, I would say, at that point. But it's just the pressure of economics and so many things. And I do think the value of at that moment, having a son is too much overvalued in many cultures. Absolutely. And my mom was the youngest daughter. So everyone said, well, because the family was not doing well. So that's why they gave her away. But then we had two other babies. They were sons. And so that argument doesn't really hold, right? If it's not doing well, you should give away <laughs> but then you keep the two other boys. And I think that is quite significant. It, the ironic thing is my mom did go back to the family eight years later. So the family is very focused on education. It is shocking in so many ways because I'm very close with my grandma, who was in some ways gave my mom away. And grandma was very close to me and always taught me all the different education values and how to be a proper person. And so there's always a dilemma, like, why this happened? But the fact of that history, and I was in the family, so I was raised by my grandma and my mom. It's just that in Hong Kong, my mom also a social worker, and so she became a great social worker for children. And because she was able to relate to the people and to the child who is helpless and felt abused or neglected, and she's always there for them. So she's become one of the great social worker in Hong Kong. And so her ideas are always so pioneer. And so very, I would say, transcending the front of how to educate a child, how to take care of a child. So 
I got the benefit of that. And then I got the benefit from other values of education and science. So I become, I guess, excel in many ways in science. Then in my heart, there's always this place wanting to fight back and reestablish her position in the family. Like, why was she giving away? And guess what? And yes, being a doctor is celebrated. (laughs) So at that moment, I didn't choose to be a doctor because of that, but more I wanted to achieve. I wanted to excel. And once I excel and achieve, I also feel in my heart, I want to give back to the woman's health and education, empowerment. I still remember when I was growing up, my mom would say how horrible it is to be a woman because you have periods, you have to carry a child, you the one who deliver babies. And also in a very common practice, certain places in Hong Kong and China, when you're very rich, you get to have many wives or mistresses. I don't know how you, <laughs> maybe not legally wives. So women is always, oh, you know, even when I was growing up watching movies, like, oh, that rich guy has a couple of wives and girlfriends. So why so devalued, right? Yeah, so almost reestablishing or establishing that women can be empowered, educated, right. and making your mark in that way with confidence. And That's not, right. And, right? That, and the woman's body is not that bad. Yes. Well, let's talk about that. Let's yes, talk about yes. that because I know and societal stigmas are big, not just in Asia, all over the world. Right. Definitely in our series here on Asian infertility, we're looking at that. And we're also looking at mental health taboos. Our guests on this podcast today both really want to change this stigma. What are some other stigmas you experienced or have seen in Asia, in the culture? As I was growing up, I felt passionately about women's health and I want to go into becoming an OBGYN. Yes. I didn't know specifically infertility, but more OBGYN women's health. And I still remember when I first understand the Chinese words that explains the vagina is the dark path. So if you translated the, the path. So it sounds bad. I mean, something called dark. So that is right because terms are very important. Very Words important. Words are important. And then menstruation is something that I still remember you don't talk too much about in school. And I think it still also can happen in America too because I do I take care of um, women who are younger, who has endometriosis. They, they understand what that is. So however, in that culture of not really celebrating women's body, in that culture where fertility is part of your job and or degrading certain parts of the body parts just because of the terms or certain, it is hard to, for a woman herself to say, oh, I want, I'm so proud of me being a woman. Yes. And Which, that was really hard yeah. also. Like I always like why it's so annoying. I still remember how efficient guys to pee when they're standing. <laughs> like I always say how efficient it is. Everything just takes longer, right? But I mean, you raise a really good point. I think we're in an era now with women almost, you know, there were the vagina monologues in America and there was all this empowerment that let's be honest, a lot of North Americans did not grow up with. So it's not just in Asia, but wow, the dark path, that is fascinating. Yeah, it is. And people don't really, I just remember pure is very bad. I remember we were trying to buy pads. It was a, I was a little girl, but I'm watching this because my dad, was, my dad was trying to buy pads for my mom from the supermarket. And she was so ashamed. Like they have to wrap it in newspaper, not to show the 
now, I mean, obviously, is on websites, people uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about different pads and different tampons. But even still now, puberty, like watching my little girl growing up, I can see how the stigma can goes and follow. Like, oh, you know, certain things change. And there are lots of data on that. Like yeah. puberty changes, like once your body develops, you you change the social construction and the stigma start to be on you and it's not treated to be a shame or embarrassment it should be treated with enlightenment and empowerment 100% and that will and i think the messages we get from our parents from society from media from episodes like this with you help in breaking down those stigmas I also know one reason we did this original article about Asian infertility that we know still is on page one, shockingly, on Google, which we're very proud of. But it does raise concern that it's such an underrepresented topic that pregnant is on page one of Google with this topic. And clearly, I'm a white woman. I'm not trying to speak on behalf of all Asians here. But I know that there are certain conditions that impact Asians more than maybe white women. I've read DOR being one of them. Can you share any yes, insight? Yes, it is interesting. We have seen this, I think, some institution in California also had this, some research because IVF medications sometimes have different effects on certain women, such as Asian women. And there was some study that has demonstrated that the Asian women receptors may require more FSH for a certain response. It's not collective everyone, obviously. The Asian women listening to this is not all the time, but we have seen collectively they may need more medication for stimulation. The ovary may not be as, and and also PCOS in Asian women is also different in PCOS and Caucasian or African-American women. So the same disease, infertility, does not demonstrate the same expression and symptoms across all races. Fascinating. I, I know it is, but not enough data to be published because the stigma of like we talk about, like even egg donors is hard. It's very hard. I don't know if people would talk about it on the internet for Asian eggs because it's just so hard to find. Because it's, again, the stigma possibly or the culture or it's sometimes harder to do certain things to recruit them. And also empowerment of how to understand one's body. Are they willing to wor- learn more? Is this something that they can even ask the question. And I think that is one thing that my mom had really affected me with her history is that I start to ask these questions quite early on. And this is not just a Asian, I think it happens even in America because I was at, when I was in college, I was one of the health advocates in campus on sexual health. And I still remember like no one really wanted to talk about it. And oh, for, for gossip, I was the only also Asian <laughs> health educator. <laughs> it was actually a sex health educator when I was at Cornell. I mean, knowing I'm going to OBGYN, so I'm yes. extremely passionate. I don't know if anyone knows like three to four times of chlamydia infection can literally can make a woman infertile, like fertility dropped down to 40%. It may be nothing for a guy. So those are very important. So when I was a sex health educator, I was promoting lots of those messages, you know, across and making sure people are empowered, understand protection. And yes, I'm passionate about fertility and really hope we can spread that information. So important. And is that one reason on the Generation Next fertility site that you've translated, you know, all the materials into traditional Chinese writing, simplified Chinese writing. Is that 
why you did that there? Yeah, it's on the works. It's never stopped the website. So we are continuously working on the social media website. I on Chinese, like to explain how the fertility process works. Personally, we are doing a YouTube video and podcast in Chinese that will be launching, I think, the end of this month, really talking about fertility in Cantonese. So my Mandarin may not be as good. So I'm from Hong Kong. So sometimes I may have to translate it, but my staff will help me out, hopefully, and try to make this a topic that we can discuss more freely. Amazing. Do you have people coming in from Asia into your practice here in New York City? Yes, I do. From different reasons, some patients, they may need gestational carrier because the laws in other countries are not as, I think, like as accommodating, I mean, I have to say. I, I don't even know where, I mean, I have to ask you, Andrea, where <laughs> a gestational care is legal right now. And it's very restricted, not even, right, in America well, New York, only. Now, for sure, it's legal. And we helped advocate for that over a number of years. But there are not many countries, enough, though. No, we'll not about... enough countries, not enough states where it is legal, which is commercial surrogacy, where it's compensated. And we have so much more change to make. We're just, you know, I think with everything when it comes to ART, accessing care, destigmatizing taboos, this is more than we could possibly cover on a podcast or even throughout uh, pregnant-ish life, right? There's so much work to be done. But I think your voice, I think the voices of Denise and Jury on the podcast who are, you know, thought leaders and celebrities in their own right in their fields, we're all doing this together as strong women. And one thing actually, I now I thought about the two points I, I was thinking about Asian women that it, it's also, it also goes with, uh, lots of times go with the Chinese philosophy. So that's a poem. And I did my high school in Hong Kong. So I have half, two, three years there. And there has a chapter about how do you have life philosophy? Basically, it's about a knife that can be maintained to be sharp and nice if you cut along this kind of a dissection course, but basically is a butcher trying to explain to the king, how do you keep your life being protected and preserved by cutting around the tendons? Basically, what he's trying to say is going with nature, that you should not go against nature with things. So to that point about women with less meds or with more meds, they sometimes don't respond. That's how mild stimulation becomes so popular was because when women have diminished ovarian reserve in Asian culture and luteal phase stimulation, many of this actually, yes, originated in more the Western country, but then it got more populated in the Asian countries because no one really wants to expose their body to medications. Also Americans too, but this was a very big philosophy. They just don't want to use more needles. So lots of this kind of a Chinese Asian philosophy, like same with acupuncture, you know, how to use less Western meds and this kind of natural mild stimulation or how to attend the ovary differently is also a very interesting kind of a Asian fertility philosophy. Thank you so much for helping us break stigmas with your voice and your everything, your advocacy, your expertise. We need more of this in the world. So thank you so much for being here and for supporting this series. No, and thank you for inviting me. This is amazing what you're doing. I love it. And for anyone who wants to learn more, be sure to visit, book a consult at generationnextfertility.com. You can visit, of course, in English, in the dialects we shared today, and also in Spanish. So you can go there, generationnextfertility.com. 
And now back to my conversation with two strong voices, TV presenter and producer Denise Keller and former Miss Universe Miss Japan 2021 Jory Watanabe, who are both dedicated to breaking all kinds of taboos in Asia and beyond. Well, that's why you both being here is so powerful, because one way we're going to elevate this conversation for those hiding in the shadows, feeling alone, which with infertility, pregnancy loss and mental health, certainly people of all cultures sometimes hide behind. But even worse, when you're in a culture that discourages that sharing. So Jury, for you, when you publicly shared on the pageant platform, Was that a conversation you had with your family? Because you just mentioned you didn't even know if your mom knew you were going through anxiety. So what was that decision like? How did you come to it and what happened? I was definitely not as careful, for sure. I think I maybe should have been, um, but I was at the same time really young too. And I was like, I just need to do it. So I think the world knew before my parents knew. And even now, it's still kind of an awkward conversation. I feel like, you know, your parents are always going to be parents and they have their ideals, right? So it's a step that I'm slowly taking. But because I opened up about it, I was also able to have a very honest conversation with my parents following. So you just kind of realize, you know, I kind of came into the public spotlight, like if not fell into my lap, but I just happened. I didn't really choose the path, but I ended up in the path and I felt like I needed to use the platform so that people can, you know, if they feel alone, they can just listen to, for example, you know, a lot of listeners just listen to your podcast and feel like they're not alone. And I feel like that's a really powerful tool, just being able to hear a story that's similar to yours. It's scary, but someone has to do it. And I feel like that's why your work But you and Denise, your work is really amazing because it makes people feel less alone in their journey. And I'm very curious, actually, to hear maybe, if you don't mind, Denise, like, was there a conversation about infertility in Asia common? Or, like, do people talk about IVF at all? I'm very curious to hear more about that. So there's this thing, and... I don't know about other Asian countries, but in Singapore, Mm -hmm. if you walk around with a purple cooling bag, you know that you're going through fertility treatments because who Mm -hmm. walks around with a purple bag? Yeah. And you see, you know, ladies going into the office with the purple bag, but it (sighs) was never a conversation that you would have with your employer or, you know, you'd have to go to the bathroom and disappear. I don't think there's enough conversations about IVF and, you know, infertility in general in Singapore, I feel like they're trying to improve that in a big way to have more conversations about this, especially this year was a really big year for Singapore because now they allow women to freeze their eggs before you weren't allowed to freeze your eggs. You had to be in a marriage before you could freeze your eggs. So this is a radical new change in Singapore. But there's still, you know, donor sperm and surrogacy is still banned in Singapore. And it's not part of the deliberate family planning. So there's, they take a step forward, but then it's kind of still a step back. Oh my gosh. So we could have more conversations about it, but it's still a very conservative cultural 
tapestry if you view it from the outside. That's so fascinating about the purple bag because actually I've told this story, I think I'm pregnant before, but in year whatever, because it was eight years for me till baby, of course, my first cousin delivered my baby, my now almost five-year-old, but... I was doing a TV hit for a number of weeks at a studio in New York and I kept seeing this producer and one day she said to me, hey, Andrea, are you going through IVF? And I was like, what? What is she looking at? Because, you know, Denise knows when you're going through fertility stuff, you take a lot of shots and I was like, oh no, what? Are, what's showing? And she said, no, every time I see you, you have that Band-Aid on your arm. And that to me looks like regular blood work and monitoring that I did at my fertility clinic and you can talk to me. That was one of the first times I shared with anyone what I was going through. But she kind of outed me because my Band-Aid. So these things that were so hyper-focused, once you go through these things, right, you know exactly how to spot certain signals that maybe others wouldn't know. But again, this should not be in the shadows. Listen, one reason we're looking at Asian infertility and mental health taboos on Pregnantish, A, because we made a commitment to represent underrepresented voices. When we launched the platform almost eight years ago, we said it's really important that we include people that are touched by this who are not covered in the storytelling. That's one reason. But the other reason is we sourced an article five years ago, six years ago on Asian infertility, which is still page one maybe page two now, I haven't checked today, but on Google, we are top of Google on this topic of Asian infertility this many years later. And we thought, well, we better do a part two now because a lot happens in five years with trends. One of the trends Denise just mentioned, I didn't even know about egg freezing, but let's look at some other things that we've been researching. Massive topic. I know Asia is a huge region, by no means in a small podcast can we barely even scratch the surface, but an important conversation nonetheless. But there are declining rates. So we look at an area like China, of course, had the one-child policy and now the government is funding fertility. To me, that is fascinating because they need more babies. Um, we, and women. And women, right. I mean, yeah. that's the big thing. I was part of an NHK Japan documentary. I don't know if I told you this, Jury. Years ago, a film crew from Japan followed me for 30 days because they thought I was like Carrie Bradshaw because I was giving dating advice. And it aired all over. I was like, I'm big in Japan. I'm not big in Japan. I but still didn't watch this. If, I have to send it to you because... In my mind, Fuji TV and other networks started contacting me. And it was so funny to me because I really want to go to Singapore and Japan one day. So hopefully through you guys, one day we can meet there. But in the meantime, I knew at that point during this documentary about declining dating rates in Japan. Of course, that's going to impact fertility. So now Japanese fertility is being threatened and the government is very much focused on that. And one article I found in the South China Morning paper, big paper, posted that for one out of every 5.6 couples of childbearing age, they are unable to make a baby, even with unprotected sex for at least a year. So there are warning bells in these countries. And are either of you surprised by these updates? Or is this news to you? Or have you been thinking about this also? <laughs> Definitely not a surprise whatsoever. Just plugging in my own experience in Japan, working there as well. There's just a huge pressure of women choosing even to this day, either career or family. 
right? And even when I was like interviewing for a job, some of the common questions that I would be getting was, do you have a boyfriend? Are you planning on getting married? And because they would choose a candidate of the same caliber, but they would choose a male over a female because of the possibility that I could get pregnant and start a family and leave the company. So even though it's not a law or anything like that, there's still this social expectation that women choose family and build a family over a career, or you just go full on with a career. Like you have to give it your all. And then by the time a lot of the women that I speak to as well, when they want to start a family, sometimes it's a little bit too late, but they don't have the resources, information to know how to start a family or, you know, go through the egg freezing process at all. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Denise, are you surprised by some of these facts and headlines that are in the news? And we're going to see them more and more in the coming years about Asian fertility decline and rates. I think birth rate in general in Asia has declined rapidly. I think Singapore is now lower than Japan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, No way. Wow. Yeah. Because of the cost of living, Singapore is a very expensive city to live and work in. So a lot of women are uh, choosing to work and opt out from having kids. There's not a lot of discussion about family planning, like whether or not you do want to have children early enough. So work is always, you know, the linear way to move forward and to survive the cost of living in Singapore. So it's not something that is discussed very openly, but yeah, I'm not shocked. And I think other Asian countries are also in decline, but I was actually quite surprised that Singapore was lower than Japan for one year. They apparently blamed it on the lunar calendar because Tiger year is not a favorable year, which is the year my daughter was born in. Oh no. (laughs) I had no idea that the Tiger year was not a favorable year. You know, it's really interesting because there's also cultural impact with education, right? So that's fascinating too. There was a, I can't remember where I was visiting when I told someone about my infertility and they were going to do some kind of ritual on me. It was in an island in the Caribbean, I think, but some ritual on me to rid me of this medical issue I had, which listen, when you're struggling sometimes, take me east, take me west. I don't care what you get. Me, I'm open because you try everything. One year I did Ayurvedic Indian, I didn't care. I was like, whatever works, give it to me. But let's also talk about the pressure that, again, we're generalizing, but Asian kids might feel to have families. I know, Jury, you're saying you pick career or family. You both have such impressive careers. But did your families put pressure on you or did you feel a societal pressure to? have children. Is that still part of the, you think, culture? Or do you think that's less and less so now apparent? On my side, it was actually the opposite because my mother gave birth to me at 41 or 42. So career was everything, you know, family last. Everything is about the hustle. Make sure that your career is tight. And that's all she ever, you know, told me to do is get your career going, work hard to survive. Women have to prove themselves 
more so than ever. So that's why I focus mainly on my career. There was never pressure of you having to settle down or starting a family. It was actually the opposite. And that's why I did what I did. I focused on my career for 20 years. I was, you know, hustling my TV career. And then when I finally wanted to settle down, it was like, all right, this is the time where I need to settle down and think about life because I can't live in a box for the next 20 mm. years. Life is passing me by. Actually, quite the opposite. And it's also because of, historically, Singapore has a different story. In the 70s, they had a two-child policy, so you had to cap you know, kids at two, and then that declined the birth rate in Singapore. Then they started saying, oh, now you can have as many kids. And now in Singapore in 2023, they're supporting fertility up to about 70%. So all the fertility treatments is co-shared by the government. So I think they're really trying to encourage to increase that birth rate. But it's still kind of a hit and miss because now there's this topic about dinks, right? Dual income, no kids, which is a popular thing that's trending in Singapore too. So that is supposed to decline the birth rate as well. There's so many factors that are affecting what's happening there. I, I don't know much about Japan because culturally we have the best of both worlds. We're we're Asian, but we have a Western outlook. So in Singapore, mm -hmm. we speak English as our common language. And culturally, yes, we are very conservative in that sense, but there are trends that come in and out and it affects us because we are, mm -hmm. you know, global citizens. So it's been a juxtaposition of weird trends, let me put it this oh, way. Oh, absolutely. And Jury, I think you mentioned to me, I think once jokingly that your family, like you have like this great title, you've done all these great things. And then I think they were talking to you about dating or marriage or babies at some point. Did I remember that right? Yes. Yeah. So tell us about that. It was absolutely not a joke. <laughs> unfortunate. I don't know if it's like fortunate or unfortunate, but... It was actually like right after I came back from the Miss Universe competition. And they're like, you know, I'm like very proud of myself for getting far, et cetera. You know, and I was like, this is like the start of my career. Yeah. And then the first thing I hear from my family is like, okay, now you have to find a man and get pregnant and have kids the next year. <laughs> like I'm just like, I'm, you know. Yeah, just like that. It's like you're in your crown, yeah, you're yeah. celebrating. And it's kind of funny because like it's kind of a, it's almost like a, a running joke where the way, of course, this is a small part of, you know, the Asian culture. And I might be generalizing here, but the joke is that, you know, first the parents flex on where the kids go to school and then where the kids go to university and what job they get. And then the next flex is who they get married to. And then finally, how many grandkids you have is like the pressure that we have. So it's like, you know, no matter how good of a job you get or how good of a career you get, it doesn't matter if you don't have kids or X amount of kids as well. So I've, at least in Japan and Korea, I think there's still a lot of the pressures of starting a family. And also it's just having a boy too, especially, to is a big pressure that commonly East Asians face. 
Yeah. And if you have too many boys, we know the result of that. We have a fertility crisis. Exactly. Yeah. But it's just, it's so multifaceted. I mean, one thing that Denise, you mentioned, and uh, we've talked about it here in America. I grew up in Canada. It's not that different, although Canada... We had sex education a little younger or more on the airwaves, I think, than we didn't have the puritanical past of America. So that's probably one reason. It's interesting. Like, I've been having a lot of conversations with my friends about the IVF process and egg freezing recently, just because a lot of my friends are just planning to do that. But they just don't have enough information, lack of understanding about our own bodies, you know. Until going through that process and they don't know who to talk to either. And I feel like it's been very common amongst my Asian American friends over other, you know, ethnicities. But I know it's like a very common issue that all women face, especially like in this generation where, you know, it's both modern, but at the same time in terms of like women's medical needs and women's bodies, I feel like the information is still so behind. And even here in America, I think many of us on the in the West also feel that education was really in the schools anyway, about how not to get pregnant, not what you should do to, you know, protect your fertility or know your reproductive body or there wasn't that kind of empowered education. And I think the tide is changing right now. And that's one of the reasons Pregnish actually exists. But Denise, I know we have spoken about that on DM too, not just breaking taboos around these things, but elevating the education, the information. And to Jury's point, Jury, with your friends kind of wondering about it, it's on their radar, it's in the zeitgeist, and yet nobody really knows what to do. So there needs to be better education and information, which I think is something you guys are going to really help bring to the surface. How do you think that can happen? Let's brainstorm for a minute. Denise, what do you think would be, should it be through TV, podcasts, airwaves, support groups? Like what could it look like to have a more supportive culture or moment there in Singapore for people to not hide in the shadows and to get the support they need? What's a change we need to make? I think what you're doing right now is exactly where we should be and connecting the countries and finding the support groups locally in Singapore to connect with you and having conversations about the taboos and the struggles of infertility. Because in Asian culture, we're afraid to talk about it. It Being vulnerable and to vocalize what you go through alone is something that is just not allowed so having that first step, that connection, whether it's social media or podcasting, I feel like connecting the countries would be great because we can all learn from each other. I mean, I'm learning so much from you, Jury, and I'm learning so much from Pregnantish. And eventually you'll have that international Pregnantish conversation, you know? That's how I feel. And that's what you're doing. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. And Jury, do you think maybe if we talk about it enough, on these platforms and both of you as public figures talking about it enough, it just allows other people to feel less ashamed. Absolutely. And it's completely aligned with Denise as well. And what you're doing, I think it must have been very scary to start this platform, right? I'm assuming, but 
you know, it's not easy to really open up at all about your vulnerability to begin with. And then this very taboo topic and for you to have this entire platform and an international connection and destigmatizing the conversation is really important and someone has to do it and you did it, which is really amazing. Thank you. I, you know, I should tell you a quick story on that note because yeah, now what you see is not who I was when it launched. <laughs> <laughs> so my background, you know, I had hosted TV shows too in the past about dating and sex, way more sexy than infertility, you know, <laughs> but I was secretly behind the scenes struggling and um, feeling like a big old fraud because I was doing shots in the back green room of whatever I was doing. Actually, I hosted a show once for the Oprah Network, and even to this day, I know the sadness I was for the poster for the show. My stomach's jutting out a bit because I have endo and fibroids, and I was about to have the fibroid removal surgery, and I was struggling, and I see it in the poster now. Like, I remember exactly, we can look at pictures, right, and know those mental health moment, anxiety moments or infertility loss moments of what was happening really during that picture. And so when I went live to say I was launching pregnant it was through a Facebook post in early 2017, and I just wrote it to my friends and I said, look, well, you've seen me on TV and on book tours and what you haven't known is, and I shared, my drawers look like I'm a junkie with how many drugs I have. Have. My body is so bruised, but I assure you my heart is more bruised. And I was very vulnerable. And the last line of my post, and I said, I'm sharing this not for any other reason, but that I know some of you reading it might find support of what I'm trying to build, which I think is needed, which is a platform, a channel dedicated to destigmatizing this. And I pressed publish and I started to bawl and I was crying and shaking. And within about an hour, and I was like wanting to hide under a rock. Oh, and the last line of my Facebook post said, so don't judge a Facebook by its cover. Because <laughs> the cover of my Facebook was like something really awesome and I was not feeling awesome. But I was really struggling when I launched Pregnantish and my husband like hugged me tight. And I woke up the next day to hundreds of messages and someone said to me, well, I was checking all night because, you know, when you share something vulnerable or public, like you're going to keep refreshing to see what's happening. <laughs> so I look and someone said, can you make this public? And my Facebook is not public, but I did make that post public. And I had media requests the next day from major media around North America at that time. So New York Times and Bravo and Toronto Star put me on the cover of their Sunday style as this woman wants to break the taboo of infertility. It was very vulnerable. But I feel like I'm a global. My dad's from Hungary. I grew up in Canada. I live in New York. I went to camp in Switzerland. I've lived in Jerusalem. Like for me, we have to be part of a global movement, in this case as women, to elevate this, to connect, to support, to help educate people that there are options and that you're not alone if you're going through this. We could talk forever. I'm so fascinated by each of you. But anything else you want to add? I'm so grateful you came on the Pregnant Podcast. Oh, gosh, so many things. <laughs> I feel like we could really go on and on about mental health, infertility, just being, you know, women's bodies as well. But just really thankful for your platform and your vulnerability too, both of you. I think the more we become comfortable with being vulnerable, it improves not only 
our relationship to others, but our relationship to ourselves. Amen. Absolutely true. Denise, anything else you want to add? No, like I said, thank you so much for doing what you do. And I really hope that you take over the world. <laughs> Global domination. Well, I think three of us have good potential here. Yes, to that. <laughs> Cheers to that. Where can people find each of you for more information and to follow your beautiful platforms? You can find me on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Denise Keller Official. You can find me on Facebook with the same name. I have a website, denisekeller.com. I update it from time to time, but I'm mostly busy right now with a pre-toddler. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I get that totally. And Shuri, where can people find you? What's the best place? Likewise, on social media, probably to be the best. On Instagram, Jerry Watanabe underscore. <laughs> Love it. I encourage the whole Pregnantish podcast audience to follow along. And this, I think, is just the beginning of a much deeper conversational work that I think is possible. So thank you again. And thank you for listening to another inspiring episode of Pregnantish, where we always break taboos and have real talk about fertility and much, much more. Until next time.